0: Well, good morning, church, and happy Valentine's Day. As we begin our study of the book of Habakkuk, you might wonder, well, why are we going to spend the next five weeks studying this minor prophet with a funny name, with all this verbiage about judgment? And I would just say to you in short, and I hope that you'll see more of a longer answer as we, as we walk through these next few weeks, but all scripture is profitable. That, that's why. And uh, we're excited about getting into the Psalms in a little while and and, and then into the book of Hebrews, but all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable and important for us, uh, including this three-chapter book of Habakkuk. And many people see Habakkuk as a book of judgment, and it is a book about judgment against Israel, first of all, for her apostasy against God, but also for the wicked Chaldeans, or or Babylonians, for their wickedness. But we also see in this book a progression, God working in the heart of his prophet Habakkuk, turning him from, you know, he he starts with this sense of of, of just a cry of despair and and lament to God. And, And we see, and even a cry of questioning a God who doesn't make sense to him, to a place of joyful dependence on God, even in the face of temporary disappointment and looming tragedy. One commentator summed up the message of Habakkuk with these words. He wrote, God's ways of preserving and purifying his people are mysterious to the believer, and yet God calls his suffering people to show faith that God's purposes for the world will at last prevail. So it's important that we remember that big picture, even this morning as as we look through the details of a conversation with God. Several key verses in this this short three-chapter Old Testament book remind us of the walk of faith, the walk of faith in God's higher purposes for history, even when we can't understand the immediate situation. And we're going to look at next week, Uh, in the second chapter, verse 4, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And man, I look forward to that. And then the following week, um, as we commission um, Mike and Libby Wilde to go back to Southeast Asia uh, to bring the gospel, we we see in the middle of a a chapter of judgment against the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, by the way, were the Babylonians, okay? Okay. In the middle of that, in the very middle of that, you see this wonderful promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I can't think of a more apt verse in the Bible for these guys, you know, with their boat crossing the sea to bring the knowledge of the glory of God to unreached villages. And then finally, our our, our fifth Sunday. Well, there'll be, uh, be a fourth Sunday looking at most of, of chapter 3. And then, and then uh, my brother Ken, Bandy, is going to bring our last sermon. He's going to wrap it all up with a bow, right? These last couple verses, they're just beautiful, where we see the progression of Habakkuk's heart, where he, he, he closes this, this book of, of, with a lot of judgment by saying, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So that's, I just want to encourage you with, that's where we're going here, even as we start in a dark place. Now, Maybe you've always wondered what Habakkuk looked like. So I've got a picture for you here, if you guys want to put that up. Here we have a, not a photo, but a sculpture by Donatello of Habakkuk in Florence. So if you ever want to know what he looked like, now you know. Actually, very little is known about Habakkuk. In fact, his, his name only appears twice in the entire Bible, and that's in this book, okay? Okay. Uh, so he, he's one of the most obscure prophets, and what do you notice though on this on, in this sculpture? I don't know how well you can see his face. What do you what do you see? Concerned, yeah. Distra- he looks distressed, right? And 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 so and, and there's a reason for that. I think Donatello had read the Book of Habakkuk a few times. He was a distressed prophet. In fact, verse 1 says the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Now, you, you could translate that word oracle for vision, but another, another way of translating that word would actually be burden. You know, some of these visions that God gave his prophets were great burdens to them personally. Now, you know, we don't, again, know much, at, we don't know anything about Habakkuk except for what we see here in these three chapters and it's very possible he was a watchman. We see in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about standing there on, at his post on the wall as a watchman. So maybe he was a, a member of the royal army. We, we don't know exactly. But we, we, we know that he, God gave him a vision, and he actually had a conversation with God. And we do know by um, the context of what we see in this book that Habakkuk lived during the last days of the Judean kingdom. That would be the southern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed and taken into captivity by the wicked Assyrians as a judgment from God for their apostasy. Now, just to back up and think about the kind of broader strokes of the historical context of the Old Testament, remember that God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 in which God made big conditional and unconditional promises to David. Okay, so the, the, the unconditional promise, no matter what anybody did, God was going to do it, and that was that God promised to build David a house and to establish his throne forever. We know that that was actually a messianic promise. It led all the way to Jesus Christ's coming as a fulfillment. But God had also made a conditional promise— in that same covenant. And that was he had warned David's descendants not to forsake their God and to follow the idols of the nations or else they would incur divine judgment. And so you know, when you read through the book of Kings, First and Second Kings or, or the Chronicles, what, what we see is that after David's son Solomon, there was a div- division. There was a civil war and a divided kingdom. You might remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And and following them, there were a number of kings, some were good, most of them were bad, and it generally went in a downward glide slope, downward trajectory. Kings got worse and worse. And, And so before King Josiah, towards the end of 2 Kings, we read about his reforms, before Josiah, Judah had radically turned away from God under the leadership of the evil king Manasseh. And his son, Ammon, or Amon. And so that the nation was ripe for punishment. In fact, we're going to look at it a little bit later, but you get this sense of such profound grief at Evil King Manasseh's um, a, a, a total turning away from the Lord that it was really it seems like at that point when you're reading through Kings, that God is like, I, "That's it. I, I'm done with you guys. <laughs> I'm removing my presence." And then you had, you had Josiah, and and his reforms, in a sense, stayed God's hand. So even, you know, you see God's mercy, even at the like the 11th hour, he's ready to just wipe these people out, and then someone will come along and repent, and, and God will stay his hand of judgment. And yet, these reforms were temporary. And so, Um, after Josiah, the kings and and the people of Judah just returned to their evil wickedness and their idol worship and and all of the injustice and and just terrible things that started happening in their society so quickly. And so we don't know for sure, but but looking at the context here, we believe that Habakkuk likely lived during the 11-year reign of evil king Jehoiakim, who was the son of the reformer Josiah. We know, as we'll see here in just a second, that that there was wickedness just permeating the society around Habakkuk. Now, unlike many prophets, Habakkuk didn't speak to the people for God. That's what most of the prophets did. They would receive a word and, 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 and speak to the people. Here, instead, Habakkuk speaks to God about his people. And so I've titled our sermon this morning, A Conversation with God. And you could actually add a number of choice adjectives before conversation, okay? A, a bold conversation with God, you might say. Um, in the words of one, one, one scholar I read, an intense conversation with God. You might even say a gumptuous. I mean, this guy has gumption, the way he talks to God. But it's an intense conversation that Habakkuk had with God in an honest conversation from the heart with God. Dr. Fentress wrote this. He said, The message of Habakkuk is brought via an intense dialogue with the Lord where the prophet seeks to reconcile his understanding of the sovereignty of God with what he sees as the incongruous actions of God. This dialogue draws the reader into a deeper reflection on the means and methods of God. So let's start by looking at Habakkuk's complaint to God, Look at verse 2. And as we read this, just again notice how bold Habakkuk is in his cry to God. And, you know, he doesn't here question God's sovereignty. What he's struggling with is God's justice. He begins with a lament similar to what we see in some of the Psalms. So verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? or cry to you, violence, you will not save. This, this reminds me of David's heart cry to God. In Psalm 13, one, I think Billy brought this one up, where, where David cries out, how long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? It's deep and and personal. And again, when we just imagine the context going on here. You know, we we see in a lot of the prophets who have revelations from God, and God speaks to them. It's not just a voice they hear out of nowhere. They actually often actually have a a glimpse of God's glory and His presence, and even like His his court with all the angels. And while we don't read that specifically here, you, you wonder if Habakkuk actually could see God in all of His glory, and he's like, and he has the gumption to say to him, where are you? Down here where we need you, where, where, we're in dist- where we're in, I'm in distress. And so he, he specifies the problem here in, in verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Again, he has no question about God's power or sovereignty. Sadly, we often question that in our, in our culture today. People look at the problem of evil, and they just, they just think, well, maybe God's just really far off. You know? Of course God would never want these things to happen, so God must not really be in control. Well, Habakkuk never questions that. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now you'll notice two themes that Habakkuk is crying out against. Violence and injustice. The word violence here, Hebrew, in Hebrew is hamas. Violence. This word hamas occurs six times in this short book. It's actually only used more in in the Psalms, I believe, in Proverbs, if I remember correctly. So this word is actually kind of a a theme here in this short book. And and it's a violation. Violence is a violation of God's moral law. We see here the strong oppressing the weak, committing violence against their fellow image bearers, their fellow human beings. The word iniquity in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity. Another another way of translating the, the original word would be injustice. We actually see three references here to the lack of justice in the society that Habakkuk is living in. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And we see Habakkuk say that The law, the Torah, is paralyzed. So God's law is what brought justice. God's law is what protected society. We see this going back in in Exodus, even before God had revealed His Ten Commandments and all of His law to Moses. We read in Exodus 18 that, that, that Moses was spending his days just surrounded by people arbitrating justice. And, and Abraham's, or not Abraham, sorry, Moses, his father-in-law, asked him, well, what are you doing, you know, all day with all these people around you? And in verse 15 of Exodus 18, Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. See, God's moral law is a gift, to mankind, and it brings justice, brings fairness. So make no mistake, brothers and sisters, God cares deeply about justice in society, especially for the underdog. When Jesus showed up on the scene in his early ministry in in Luke, in chapter 4 of Luke, we, we read that he quoted the first several verses of Isaiah 61. He walked into a synagogue and they handed him the scroll. He opened the scroll, the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled it to the place and he found where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And everybody were watching Jesus at that point. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And, and he is the one who, as we, we Christians know, he is the one who satisfied God's just wrath against our sin and, and puts us into a right or just standing with God. And yet that's not what Habakkuk saw going on around him. He saw the lack of justice. He saw the the, the strong oppressing the poor. He saw the religious leaders who were supposed to be following the Torah just promoting idolatry, going after other gods, using religion falsely for their own power instead of for God's glory and for the good of people around them. And so Habakkuk cried out to God for the violence and the injustice around him. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Um, I, I remember serving in, in places where there had been virtually no influence of God's law. I am so thankful for our country, I have to say. Even with the craziness going around us these days, I am so thankful <laughs> that, that, that there is a law that people follow. And, and you know, if, if, if a company takes advantage of me, I can call the Better Business Bureau. You know, and, and we generally expect justice in our lives there are places in this world where the gospel's never been where people don't expect justice where the, where they find no justice I, I remember crying out lamenting to god from my soul after several years in afghanistan just struggling honestly with god's sovereignty that he would allow such a place to exist where the religious used religion as a tool to oppress people and women had, I mean, were, were, were treated subhuman. And the strong oppressed the weak. And, and, you know, we were there trying, doing our best to, to help people, you know, medically. Uh, trying to help with education projects and water projects in village. And, and really what we were trying to do is bring the gospel to people. And it felt like a drop in the bucket. Like we were getting almost nowhere and almost making no difference. And I knew that God could sovereignly snap his fingers and all these people would bow their knee to Christ and, and come to know Him and receive His mercy and, and there would be a hope for justice. And I'd be like, God, how long? Like, when will you actually do something here? I, I remember struggling with anger that such a wicked place could exist on God's earth. I think that's what, I think that's what Habakkuk feels. I remember in... Mozambique coming to realize that virtually every young girl was going to be raped before she was 15. Just cr- crying out for justice. Like, what could you do? Um, just about every young boy in Afghanistan is, is molested before he's 13, 14 years old. What does that do to a society? That's what Habakkuk is seeing and crying out to God. You know, I think of, maybe, think of this, think of a, of, a, of a Christian African-American slave 200 years ago in our country, crying out to justice to God, at, at living under the oppression of a Christian white slave owner, saying, Lord, how long will you, will you wait? And I praise God that God has changed things in our country. Well, how bad was it really in Habakkuk's day. He, he talks about violence, and he talks about injustice. Well, you know, these things stemmed from wholehearted idolatry. So to understand how bad God's chosen people had slidden away from him, turn with me, if you will, back to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 21 second kings chapter 21 if you're looking at a esv pew bible that would be on page 328 we read about one evil king and this is just an example of what these people were doing we read about king manasseh in second kings chapter 21 now manasseh was the son of righteous hezekiah who had, had brought people closer to the Lord, but Manasseh wholeheartedly rejected Yahweh. So read, read along with me, if you will, in, in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 21. We see here that Judah had become morally and spiritually corrupt, worshiping Baal on high places, offering children to Molech, dedicating their horses to the sun god and even desecrating the temple so look at verse one here with me manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 55 years in jerusalem his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the lord drove out before the people of israel for he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Ashtoreth, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven. I, I think that's a reference to the demonic... In the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. Actually, the Hebrew here means that he made his son, and we see in Chronicles that it was more than just one, pass through the fire. Can you imagine the wickedness? And used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Astra. Astra was a Canaanite deity, female deity. And many of the syncretistic Jews that started following Astra and, and setting up Astra poles would, would actually consider Astra to be the wife of Yahweh. Okay? So, syncretism of the worship of the true God with pagan fertility deities. Here's what he did. Verse seven, and the carved image of Asher that he made, he said in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Just to reiterate, Manasseh burned his son as a human sacrifice, engaged in all kinds of witchcraft. He erected an pole in the house of the Lord, basically saying this is Yahweh's wife, total spiritual corruption, mixing paganism, With the sacred worship of Yahweh. So we read what God said he would do in verse 10, that God would remove his his presence from them. And he promised judgment. Verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and have done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of anyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnants of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall be a prey and spoiled all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Now, remember with with God that mercy always triumphs over judgment. The reason he gave these these horrific prophecies were were warnings to his people to turn. They they could turn even at the very last minute and he would stay his, his hand, but they did not listen they did not turn. And we read in verse 16 that this idolatry that we read about led to violence and bloodshed across the land. Look at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So it was, it was really, really bad. That was Manasseh's day. The, the, his son, um, Amon, was wicked. Then there was Josiah, who actually made a number of reforms, but didn't quite go all the way. And, and so you had this kind of blip on the radar, like, and God stayed his hand of judgment for Josiah's sake. And then after Josiah, you had several other kings who just were wicked, went right back to the ways of Manasseh. And then God sent the Babylonians to destroy and wipe out. Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom. So Habakkuk here is is living in the end times, as it were, for the southern kingdom. He's seeing evil in society all around him, and he's struggling to believe that, that, that God is good when there's so much evil in the world. He's saying to God, do something, God. He believes that God is sovereign, so he's in control of all things. And he believes in his heart that God is good And that God hates this violence and injustice, but he sees it everywhere. One commentator wrote, Habakkuk's lament to God is fraught with the tension of unanswered prayer. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed a prayer to God that you soon came to regret? You wish you hadn't done it. Because God answered in a way that you did not expect and that you did not like. Well, let's look at God's answer to Habakkuk in verse 5, in which God says, I see everything. I see it all. I'm grieved by it, and I'm sending justice, which you're crying out for, but it's coming in a way that you would not believe. It's coming at the tip of the sword of the violently wicked Babylonians who are on their way soon to destroy the land of Judah. So that's, what, that's God's answer in verse 5. He says, Look among the nations and, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that, I, that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, again the Babylonians, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. So God is sovereign over history, and he's telling Habakkuk that he is actually in process of raising up these warlike Babylonians, these wicked Babylonians to judge his chosen people. And these, these Babylonians don't fear God or his just law. In fact, it says that they create their own justice. Their justice is their own might. They, they, they have the power and they worship their power. And then in these next verses, God rubs salt in the wound, as it were, by describing their war machine. So look at verse 8. It's talking about the Babylonian army here. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to devour. They all come for violence, and all their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand at Kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their own God. One, one scholar described these words, verses 8 through 11, uh, with these four words describing the Babylonians. They were hasty, harmful, hardened, and hell-bent. They were hasty. We see three different predators used to as as a description of this Babylonian army. Right, the the leopard and the wolves and the eagle. The idea being that that you don't have a chance. You're like a little mouse. You know, that an eagle is just swooping down to, to grab. They're, they're, you know, the, the horses as they thunder across the plain are like leopards. Just you know, your your military might, your defensive defenses have. Defenses have No chance. And they're harmful here. We see in this description of of military technology here. They they boast in their power. They they laugh at kings. They easily destroy fortified cities. You know, uh, don't take any solace in the the walls of Jerusalem or Shusha or any of your other walled cities with, with parapets. They they just build siege mounds. They laugh at your defenses. They build siege mounds. They overwhelm, and they're hardened. We we read in history that from 626 to 609 BC, the Babylonian military became truly battle-hardened and became the dominant force in the ancient Near East as they overthrew the Neo-Assyrian Empire. They were just hell-bent. They were arrogant, guilty men whose might is their god we read tragically at the end of chronicles that this is exactly what happened Uh, if you look at the end of second kings you, you you realize there are actually several stages as it were in which the babylonians came and at first really made israel kind of a vassal state and then you had a king of israel that got tired of paying tribute and rebelled and then they came and they just they cleaned house and they did not spare women or children although they did Spare some that they hauled back to be captives, to be slaves in Babylon. And of course, the Lord in his sovereign power still had a long term plan. As we know um, from reading the rest of the story, some of these people that were taken off to Babylon as slaves one day were able to return to the land and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall, and, and such that you had Jews living in an occupied territory when Christ came on the scene but at the end of second chronicles we read this the lord the god of their fathers sent persistently to them he's talking about the southern kingdom here the the tribe of judah Uh, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place that would be the temple But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on the young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and all his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So that was God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer. This is what's coming. Judgment, and it is sure, and it is coming quickly. And you have no chance. So what do you think Habakkuk's response to God was? Let's see in verse 12. Habakkuk says, what? <laughs> Wait a minute, God. I live in the southern kingdom of Israel. He didn't say that, but that's kind of implicit here. Uh, scholars point out that this passage is actually uh, what we call a chiastic structure, or like an, it's based on an ABA pattern. Okay, so it's like a sandwich. So the A, like verse twelve, we see Habakkuk replies with a statement of confidence in God's justice, but then in verse thirteen to seventeen. He questions God's revealed method of justice. And we'll get to that in a second. And then his final comment here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is, is, is another statement of faith that, that God is going to answer and God is going to somehow explain and make things clear. So in verse 12, Habakkuk cries out, Are you not from everlasting? O oh Lord my God, my Holy One. We see this personal devotion to God, even as he struggles. We shall not die. And you think, how, "No, wait a minute, was that impertinent? God just said, you are. <laughs> You're going to get it. Well, I think Habakkuk remembered God's, unconvin- uh, God's unconditional promise to David, that there would be a remnant that would actually survive, that one day God would use to bring him glory. And it was through a glass darkly, There was a lot Habakkuk didn't know, but he was right. Uh, God, even in this judgment, would not completely exterminate his chosen people. So he says, Oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he acknowledges God's sovereignty, and he acknowledges God's revealed plan for judgment. But then in verse 13, he says this you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he in other words God you are I know you are the definition of justice but how can you allow people who are more evil than us to destroy us right I mean he started by complaining about the wickedness of his own people And God answered and said, yes, I see. I'm sending the Babylonians to wipe them out, to bring my judgment. And so now Habakkuk is is standing up for his people saying, no, wait a minute. We're the good guys. We're we're the chosen people here. They're worse than us. Try to put yourself in his place for a moment. It'd be easy that there are a lot of things that we could cry out right now in our own nation to God about, right? Right? Lord, the the blood of the innocent, of the unborn cry out to you. How long, O Lord, will you wait and stay your hand of of judgment against us for the the murderous sin of abortion that plagues our land? That comes from exalting the freedom of sexual expression, right? And, And trying to protect at all costs people's right to rebel against your moral law. And now we've gone so far as we don't know the difference between men and women and and, and our lusts are just running rampant with pornography. And how long will you allow this wickedness, oh God? And our politicians not only allow it, many of them condone it and defend it, and are now trying to rewrite genders, things that you've made. How long will you stay your hand of judgment you might think twice before you pray that, by the way. And imagine God responded to you verbally, powerfully. Well, you knew it wasn't just a, a dream. And he said, I see, and I'm right, I'm raising up the Chinese to come and wipe out the United States of America. There's going to be nothing left. You, you, you guys think you have a strong war machine, and you do, but you have no idea of the technology that they're developing. The nanotechnology, the drone warfare, they make your carrier battle groups obsolete. Your missile defense systems, even your, you know, the button you can push that you think you can send you know, ICBMs as a deterrent, they laugh at it. How do you respond? Like, wait a minute, God. The Chinese... They're worse than we are. Yeah, we've got some socialists kind of, you know, mucking about, but these are communists. And abortion, they, this, this state-mandated abortion in China, they kill like hundreds of millions a year, right? Maybe, maybe we've got some racial issues. They, they're like locking up ethnic minorities and and brainwashing them, they're, We're we're like angels compared to them. God, how can you do this? That's the cry of Habakkuk. In verse 13, Dr. Fentress explains, he says, Habakkuk is struggling to reconcile his theology of God with the word of God that has just been revealed to him by God. How does God appoint Babylon to execute judgment and punish Judah for its sins against God without violating God's own standard of judgment? since God is holy, and the Babylonians are worse sinners than God's people Judah. These are not questions of of doubt, but rather they are questions coming out of a deep faith, trying to understand the deep things of God. So Habakkuk here is asking if it is just for God to use the wicked to bring about his judgment. Dr. Carl Emmerding notes as in many of the psalms the hard issues of God's goodness are set in a context not of philosophical speculation or cynical debate but of reverent worship and communion. So Habakkuk is not being impertinent. He's worshiping God even as he brings his deep questions very boldly before the Lord. And Habakkuk continues this thought, and at first look, it might be a little bit hard to understand, verses 14 to um, 17. In verse 14, Habakkuk says, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He's talking to the Lord here, um, saying, hey, God has made humans and their societies kind of like fish, you know, vulnerable, swimming around in the ocean without any clear direction. But then in verse 15, he, he changes it from saying you to he. And so in verse 15 here, he's talking about Babylon, the Babylonians, okay? And so he says, he, that, it, that would be the Babylonians, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So again, this is a a metaphor, but but what, what Habakkuk is saying is that these wicked Babylonians are treating humans that you've made in your image like fish. They catch and devour nations, becoming wealthy through their oppression. They deify and even worship their own power. They worship their net. And this is the question. That last line. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will you allow these wicked people to keep doing this forever, God? So Habakkuk goes from, from, he moves here from, from lamenting about the wickedness of his own people to crying out for the justice. How long will you allow wicked nations to oppress their victims? One scholar concluded here, it is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. I'll read that again. It is a wise man who takes his questions about God to God for the answers. But before we condemn Habakkuk for his impertinence towards God, I think we do need to ask ourselves if we are truly distraught By the sin, the idolatry, the violence, the injustice that is found in our own society. One scholar put it this way, he wrote, One question we should ask ourselves is whether we have the same perspective on the sinfulness of human society of Habakkuk. He was disturbed, not amused, by the sinfulness of society. Are we amused by the current state of our society? Or are we profoundly concerned for the consequences of sin on humanity? If Christians do not weep over the lostness of society, then there is no hope for society. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, according to Jesus. Matthew five thirteen through 16. Now, I appreciate how Habakkuk ends this um, second complaint to God. He, he says, and he's very transparent here, in verse one of chapter two, he says, I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Um, he know, he, 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 he's waiting on the Lord to respond. He's not expecting that he's going to like it, but he is, he, he is, he is going to keep talking with God. You know, in some ways, I see similarities with Ezekiel. Ezekiel, we read about um, him being a watchman. Maybe it was a physical watchman. Maybe both of these prophets actually had jobs where they were watchmen. Maybe this is metaphorical, right? A metaphorical tower. A watchman's job was to to stand there, and a prophet's job was to stand on the tower and look out for danger and to warn the people of, of danger. So Habakkuk stands on his watchtower, and he waits... For God's answer and he believes surely there must be more. Surely there must be more information. More of God's plan that he's going to explain to me. Things I don't yet understand. And I think of Proverbs 3 5 and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths well how will the Lord answer Habakkuk's complaint come back next week and see how God answers let's pray heavenly father you have said that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways For as heaven is higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, declares the Lord. Lord, help us to just stop and trust you, that you are working out a plan in human history. We thank you, God, that we have far more light, far more revelation than Habakkuk did, that we know that, that you orchestrated all of these things to bring about the true Savior, Jesus Christ, and he is our hope. And Lord, we look forward to the day that He comes back to judge the earth in righteousness, and there is no more injustice, and Christ reigns with us, His people. Lord, we pray that until then, we would live hoping and waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name I pray. Amen.